Hi, my name is Jesse Cadden, and I've devoted my life to figuring out what goes into making great albums. I've produced over a thousand records, written two books, and recorded hundreds of podcasts pursuing the hidden secrets of how great music gets to the world's ears. Now I'm proud to present Inside the Album, where we get to go deeper on how your favorite artists have made the amazing albums in their catalog. We will hear firsthand from the musicians and the team behind them that helped craft these records while getting to know the little secrets that go into making great music. On this episode, we discuss Sam Martin's debut album, Alpha Omega. Sam Martin is a Grammy-winning musician, singer, songwriter, and record producer. He rose to the public eye in 2014 for not only being featured as both singer and songwriter on two number one David Guetta songs, he also co-wrote Jason Derulo's Want to Want Me, which holds the record for the most ads in contemporary hit radio history. Since then, he's worked with a virtual who's who of pop music, including Maroon 5, Ziggy Marley, One Direction, Nick Jonas, The Chainsmokers, Pitbull, Snoop Dogg, Amon Van Buren, and G-Eazy. But this isn't why you should know Sam. In 2019, he released his solo debut, Alpha Omega, taking an ambitious step that I have never heard of anyone known for writing EDM bangers take, a concept album. The album is an ambitious and deep mood that chronicles a journey through life and strikes countless emotional peaks, all while maintaining a consistent and powerful mood. This spring, I got to chat with Sam, and he started off the conversation by telling us how he got here. So I never knew that you could write songs for other artists. So when I was a kid, I always just sang the songs and, you know, just put out little records and I'd sell them at high school, at my high school. And it was just, that's what you do. And I had a decent voice. I thought I had a better voice than I did. It wasn't until I moved down to uh, Los Angeles that, uh, or was you know, coming down here a lot was that I was just getting pushed by my just fellow writers because I would usually be the the better singer in the room, not necessarily the better writer. So I would always have to sing, you know, whatever we wrote, even if I didn't like it. They started pushing me and they started, my range actually improved by about four or five notes and and I sang harder. And so it was very strange for me because I maxed out my range and now all of a sudden I'm hitting a C, like what? And I'm barely hitting a C sharp and full voice. And it's just like, what's going on? I was only hitting an F sharp or a G at the at the best. So everything was improving. My writing was improving. My, my singing was improving. And so what happened was I always thought of myself as an artist. And there came a point where I really was really broke, extremely broke and uh, negative money. It was now becoming a self selfish endeavor to continue this journey as an artist, especially with a wife. I was a newlywed and I just said, okay, now it's a hobby. I'm 27 years old or something and I've already gone for it and that's it. And don't, you just keep it a hobby, Sam. That's what I was saying to myself. Then I kind of accidentally started a band with my brother. He's a very funny guy and we, we like to have fun on the camera. We made a few videos that went viral. We're one of the early YouTube beneficiaries, I guess. Our our little act went viral and then he made a goofy song that I helped him with and that went more viral and then and I wrote him a song that had a big chant in it, like a big soccer chant. And that when we released that song, I didn't know this was happening, of course, but Mike Karen was searching for new talent and found this independent release top 100 thing on iTunes. And there was our song and it had this chant and he, he actually sampled it and sent it over to a, the Featherstones, a, a producer group. They sampled it and Dr. Dre heard it and liked it. 
and wanted it to be on his album Detox, which never came out. Anyway, well, Esther Dean, who was like number one writer at the time, wrote on this track with my chant. And Dr. Dre, Eminem, and Lady Gaga were going to release this song. <laughs> and that is crazy. My, no one told me this. <laughs> and I signed a very tough publishing deal. And as soon as I signed it, I found out this opportunity was in the works. It slowly kind of became clear that that wasn't going to happen. And then, you know, another artist wanted it, 50 Cent wanted it, and then someone else wanted it. And then it, it just kind of evaporated. But it got me signed to uh, Mike Karen, who's a powerhouse and super talented individual and a hustler and a legend in the making. I didn't know he was a legend in the making. And so when I, when I met him the first time before I signed it, I said uh, I, I was impressed with his intelligence. It seemed like he knew how to make money in music and I was unable to make money in music in any significant way so it was cool to hear all these theories and all this stuff so I, I remember going you know what I, I don't know if we're gonna do business together Mike but uh but I know that you're gonna do really well <laughs> I didn't know that he was already you know already doing very well so I he laughed and I said I guess I'm gonna sign that deal I mean no one else is knocking on my door while Sam's a totally unique story one of the weird trend lines you do see with people who are able to make amazing pop music is that oftentimes they've never really listened to much pop music and they come to it from an outsider's perspective. The second miracle moment was when I now have been presented with pop music. I've never, at this point in my life, I, I don't like pop music. I don't even know what's going on. I didn't, didn't even know who Rihanna was or who Maroon 5 was. I'd heard Stereo Hearts, but I didn't even know who that guy was. And uh, I remember my wife saying, I think you could write something like this. And it was Stereo Hearts. And I, I, I thought, that's really cheesy. You know, I don't, I don't like that. You know, <laughs> now I like love that song. So now it's put in my subconscious that I need to like write this pop music, you know? And I'm like, what? I wake up from a dream with this little melody going around in my head. And I thought, oh, that sounds like pop. And I ran to the piano and in a sort of a haze, put it down on this little digital recorder and went back to bed. Woke back up, listened to it. For some reason I was inspired by it. And I finished the song in another flash. And I said this word, kind of mumbled it. Daylight. I was like, daylight. You know, I was like very mumbly. And, but I said, oh, that's cool. I'll make kind of build the whole song lyrically around the word daylight. And works over a few days. Daylight was really sort of a metaphor for the light at the end of the tunnel as you pass away into the die and go into the next, whatever the next is. And so that it was their last night and ever. And that got me goosebumps, you know, and I've always been fascinated with what's on the other side, open to all theories. Anyway, and then uh, from, so I, I was really happy with the song, you know, sent it in. And I have a funny response that I've kept from Mike Karen, which was like, not bad, but uh, needs more of a this and that. And, you know, <laughs> and, uh, and unknown to me, you know, I'll flash forward here. But eight months later, was in the room with Max Martin, <laughs> Adam Levine, a guy MDL who had great producer, and he had helped me. Uh, he put drums on it, cleaned it up. He was one of the main reasons it even got past Mike Karen and into uh, Room 5's uh, inbox. Anyway, I'm in the room with Max Martin and Adam Levine, and you know, this is really my baby. 
my song and they're saying this is going to be the next single or the third single and he was saying incredibly positive things like this is the best song ever you know <laughs> it's wow. like not the best it's not the best song ever just was so pumped on it and even on jimmy fallon when he was supposed to be promoting another single he, they, jimmy fallon said hey it's like is, is uh is this song is payphone your your jam and he's like actually my favorite song is daylight and i'm like what is going on you know and i've never got a cut in my life you know, this is my first cut as an out, as a writer, learning from Max Martin, just like watching him work. And, and I, I, for some reason, I was so arrogant in a way. I wasn't like no one. And in like after a day and a half, I just kind of got so humbled by Max Martin's perfection that I, I just like from actually feeling like a participant in my song, I stopped and I immediately went to being a student. I just started asking questions and instead of being like, trying to be with the guys you know <laughs> i think if you're curious and is, is the moment i realized that i need to shut up was that uh max came in and and uh he said well, we need to get acoustic guitar on this and i was like great and then i and james valentine who i love started playing a guitar I was, oh that sounds great you know he goes well just calm down you know let's uh try out a few guitars and i was like okay then he, he goes well, let's try a couple more and then we're trying to i'm like wow this is a lot of acoustic guitar you know and then all of a sudden he pulls out this 1965 gibson started playing it and it just sounded about fifty thousand times better than the other guitars and i could not believe that i didn't know that and something about that little moment and i just no one knew it but i changed right there that was the little moment and then he said go on the piano sam and let's play and i was like no way am i going on the i go because I, I, I have no idea you're not gonna like it you know you're not gonna be able to describe what you want and why don't you just go do it and he said what i said just do you do it you know and he goes in there he goes i haven't played the piano in three years <laughs> And then he went in there and he this Max and started, he found this nice thing that kind of just like every breath you take, uh, uh, this piano kind of on the offbeat, on the snare, just this holding on these fifths. And it just sounded, it was just a great move. And I, I use it a lot on other stuff too. I could talk about that forever. But anyway, my I just went, oh God, I've never done this in my life. I've never, I'm, you know, I think I was 27 years old and I'd never made a finished record, I realized. <laughs> And I thought I had, I'd made like five or six albums and I'm like, I don't know what I'm doing. So, but I forgot to say, this was great. When I uh, first met the guys, like Adam Levine and Max Martin, Max kind of sat me down and, and me and MDL and he said, uh, who, who, who wrote this song? Like the song, you know, I said, well, he produced, you know, most of it MDL, but uh, I actually wrote the, the song, you know, like the chords and the words and the melody. And, and he looked at me and he said, um, where did you come from? And, and I was like, I think he meant like, who's your publisher? <laughs> but I said, Oregon. <laughs> Everybody laughed just like that. When many people think of rock stars, they think of a natural charisma that the person was surely just born with. But what Sam's going to talk about here is it's not always the smoothest road to gaining that confidence and really having success. There's ups and downs and there's points where you're confident and you doubt yourself i've supported parents i grew up all my peers thought you know i was like the only reason i, I became prom king was because i could i wrote i made albums you know and i was like the musical wizard guy and in, in my hometown and, and so i i never felt like i wasn't affirmed you know, I, I wasn't i wasn't like i felt that i had done some 
cool stuff and, and people had enjoyed my music and been touched by it and had had goosebumps by it and that kind of thing. And so I, I felt kind of good in, about life and music and all that, even when I was kind of quitting. But I guess I'd never heard it from the best guy in the game ever. And when it when he said that, he basically said to me, you know, or you're okay, you know, you're good. It had such an effect on me after the, the day was over. I, I didn't even go home. I took a walk and just was like this that I had just I just kind of passed the test you know it had a big effect I mean I don't think a lot of people get that I mean how often does a guy like at the level of Paul McCartney tell you you're good and then works on your song you know and, and then like and then and then it becomes a number one single and now we go on a stage together at the ASCAP Awards it's just me and Max Martin and so it was just crazy so and it was my first and it gets played on the Grammys and it gets played on Saturday Night Live it gets played on the on the voice and it gets but you know did this whole thing and I had no cuts before then I had I just was writing music for whatever so it's like then the next question was could i even do this again since it happened in a dream and i spent a year and a half and although i did get a a, a ziggy marley song i didn't make i made like a thousand dollars on the ziggy marley song i did get a grammy for it which was i still love that that happened but the reality was i wasn't good likelihood that i was a one hit wonder and that was going to be it. And it wasn't until I started meeting some new friends like Jason Egan, Ian Kirkpatrick, Lindy Robbins, uh, Julia Michaels, people like that, that uh, they started to kind of teach me about what people were really looking for. And Mike Karen was, you know, clearly supportive and all this stuff. But all of a sudden, I, I after a year and a half of kind of struggle, having this big, big hit and not knowing what to do, how to get more pop music out there, I had this uh, two years later, all my efforts Everything came out in one kind of six-month period, one fall. And I had met David Guetta, and we had got along, and me and Jason were kind of on a roll together. And we wrote two number one songs in one week, which was uh, Dangerous and Lovers on the Sun. And one was on Monday, one was written on a Friday. And it was just like, go, things were going well, I could feel it, but I still had nothing except my one song, Daylight, which was you know all you could ever ask for out of life anyway, but... Let's light it up, let's light it up until our hearts catch fire And show the world a burning light that never shines so bright Just like when he met Max Martin, one of his main collaborators, David Guetta, would also be a humbling run-in. I remember I met David Guetta at the APG Studios, and I thought, you know, people should know me because I have this number one song, you know, and they didn't. You know, they, <laughs> everyone kind of thought Max Martin wrote it. You know, people came up to Max, people I met later, and like, congrats, I love that Daylight song, you know, and he'd say, ah, thank you, but I really can't take credit for it, you know, uh, which was really cool of him. And uh, when I met David Guetta, I, I kind of assumed he would know who I was because of this song. And I remember I went up to him and I said, hi, hi, David. I'm nice to meet you. I'm Sam Martin. And he looked at me like, who? You know? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I remember going like, oh, uh, just a fan of your music, man. You know, like, thanks for, uh... and he, I was like, okay, I'm done. You know, I don't like to do that, like go up to people. So I was just like, okay, that sucked. I remember I told him this uh, at this dinner table where years, you know, two years later. And I said, do you remember the first time we met? <laughs> and I go, 
basically, you had no idea. You were very nice, but you basically had no idea who I was. And I kind of said to myself, well, the only way he's going to know my name is if I uh, write him an incredible song. And so that was sort of my motivation. I really didn't like any other music except I thought that Titanium was amazing. I was like, okay, I got to focus on this guy because... I don't think I can get another cut from anyone else because Room 5 only does a record every two or three years and that's like a miracle and that happens. So I just focused on it and he liked some stuff early on, but it wasn't until me and Jason got together that we wrote Dangerous and Lovers on the Sun on that one in one week. I remember not knowing if Dangerous was very good. In fact, I was embarrassed by it. But we were up till five in the morning and, and my my head was, I was really not the right place to be listening to anything. And I just, uh, I said, I can't hear that right now. I got to go. And I just walk. I remember walking backwards, just leaving and my Jason going like, okay. <laughs> and uh, anyway, the next morning we woke up to an email from David Guetta going, this is a monster. <laughs> as far as rock star fairy tales go, you think this would be the top and everything would be going well and the snowball would be rolling on his career. But as you'll hear, it takes a lot more than that to make it as a pop star. Now my voice is on these records, but they're trying to replace me. I mean, I'm having, and out of respect, I will not say who tried to cut it, but basically the biggest names tried to cut this song. And I kept thinking, oh, we're going to have a great cut. It's going to be like David Guetta featuring someone incredible, you know, and it's going to be a number one. It's going to be great. And he kept saying, ah, I just don't like his voice and, you know, just not coming out the way that I like it in the demo. And, and I'm going, I'm sitting and finally we were at his house in Ibiza and we're going, well, I like your demo the best, you know? And I was like, what? And I was like, okay. And I was like, that's fine. And then lovers on sun, they tried to get some really cool people to sing that one. And, and they, uh, backed out last minute. So he said to me, he goes, you, your voice sounds incredible on this. Like, why don't we just, why don't we just leave you on the Lovers on the Sun? I was like, whoa. I was like, okay. So then uh, they, I remember we were at that same trip in Ibiza and they showed me the graphic, like Lovers on the Sun featuring Sam Martin and Small Letter. I was like, oh, <laughs> cool. Yeah, this is great. So, so Lovers on the Sun actually went number one, Germany and in the UK. And then it was kind of, uh, I guess it was loved around Europe that summer because I'd hear like people playing in their cars or, you know, someone would send me a video and I was like, oh, this is awesome. You know, and I thought, well, Dangerous is the one they're going to do the whole campaign around. So it, I was getting some talks from Atlantic. They were like, do you want to sign a record deal? And I was like, I think I should only sign this in if danger if i stay on dangerous so literally they, they were trying to replace me up until like the last minute and then i get a call from david Guetta's uh right hand man and he says sam we're gonna keep you on the record and i was like oh my gosh okay and so they kept me on the record and it literally was the the song in which i i went around and did the promo and did the voice in germany and did what was it, x factor in milan and then I did uh, the, the NRJ thing and did this whole round of publicity stuff with David. And we did the Good Morning America and in, in, in New York. And anyway, it was just like kind of awesome and hard, a lot of pressure. I got sick for one of them and I tried so hard to, to make those notes. That's the highest song. Part of the reason is that my voice improved so much 
during those years of sessions that I was able to sing really low and really high. And you could kind of change the key, but for, you know, normally if, if the notes were in a certain range where you could kind of, they were tighter, you know, you would be able to move the song up and down and, and have anybody sing in their sweet spot. The problem was that when you went too low, you know, no one could sing those low notes. And then when you went too high to make the low notes better, you know, no one could sing that high. So I think the reason I was able to stay on those songs is because I had this range that uh, I don't even know where it came from and no one could do the whole range. And So while a lot of this talk has been very career-minded and talking about stepping up the ladders of fame, what you learn about Sam is that really doesn't matter as much to him as his family. And he's going to talk about that now. So, you know, obviously I signed the record deal with Atlantic. thought it would be cool. And then I actually had my first son and I just fell in love with my son. I, I never no idea that, that that kind of emotion, that I had that amount of love in me. What a beautiful thing. And I just took the time off. I said, what, what is, and I just had, I had, had another song called Want to Want Me come out which went number one. And that was my big, that's my biggest song for sure. And I felt financially that I had be secure for a while and that I could take the time to be with my son. And I wouldn't trade it for the world, but it definitely messed me up because everyone else was still hustling and I was half hustling and just, I could not believe how much I love this kid, you know, and it's still going, you know? So now I just had to like figure out some balance to be able to to raise my sons and still write music and be engaged in this intense world. But anyway, then it's kind of everything kind of went on pause and, and it's kind of, you know, you could say a, a mistake in a career sense, but in a life sense, no way, you know, like, like your plaques give you a hug. <laughs> Nobody talks about your plaques at your funeral. So who cares, you know, but happy to, uh, to write music and do this for a living. I don't want to fall for that drug that it, that it is that, that makes you think it's your value and your worth and that it matters so much. It just doesn't. Look at everyone's eyes who's decided that music is their number one and see how it's going. You know, that's what, that's what I'd say. So hearing that a pop artist who's particularly known for collaborating with David Guetta made a concept album could seem really strange. But once you hear how it came to be, you start to understand. So even my little high school and junior high albums had this like reprise of a song, like a song. I'd play one version of a song and then three songs later I'd play it a little differently i'd have like the stripped down version and the fully produced version then you know or i'd have like a complete different chaos part one chaos part two chaos part three and this is all came from pink floyd another brick in the wall part one another brick in the wall part two another brick in the wall part three you know i don't know where the song starts but it goes all the way to the end and through golden slumbers and carry that weight and all that and then of course sergeant three songs into the last three songs this is crazy and uh i just loved it it's basically a, a modern day symphony or an opera or whatever i studied some of mozart and beethoven and they all did this concept album or they would call it an opera or a symphony and i just thought that was the coolest possible thing you could do was and take a theme and take a story and 
build a whole song or a whole uh, 40 minute to an hour piece around this story. And I think I was a bit haunted by the fact that I hadn't done it. And I felt that I needed to do it. And I was just watching a documentary last night about, about raising boys and they need to express themselves or else they bottle it up. And if you bottle it up inside, it, it makes you angry and you have pain. Part of the healing process is to express what you're feeling. And a lot of boys are not told they, they're not supposed to cry and they're not supposed they're supposed to be tough and man up it's actually not the best way to become a man <laughs> so i kind of told my wife i was like i know why i did the concept album because i i needed to express it for some reason and if i didn't express it it was gonna backfire on me and it was already backfiring on me i was really losing steam for music and you know being in pop and just trying to make money or something is good not a good for your soul you actually lose creativity and, you know, you have to like find the balance where, you know, you need to do the task to make money for your family or whatever. And the other side, you, you don't realize, but you need to be very creative to be able to do that. And to be creative, you need to be inspired and to be inspired is a mystery. And I, I've solved my entire life financial in one inspiration. So I really value inspiration. You know, you lose inspiration. You're just trying to do what you just did. You know, like how I did that again, another number one radio song or whatever. So I had to do it. We connected with Sam a few times. So you'll notice that there's a little bit of a different grain to his voice in this one. But I wanted to talk to him about how, since he always felt like he needed to make this record, I wanted to find out how it actually came to being. Every time I would write sort of an emotional song that was really personal to me, it never got used by any other artist. Because at the time, I was just trying to survive, and I was signed to Mike Karen's company at APG. And, you know, we, I was just writing songs, and occasionally I would just be fed up with the hunt for a radio hit, and I would write something uh, meaningful, or something would happen, or I'd be in a sad place, or I'd be in a happy place. Oh, like my wife who was extremely nauseous in her pregnancies and uh, I'd write a song for her or something and, and I'd always feel like I'd kind of send it in and think like oh here's a song I wrote and they didn't jump all over it I just kind of kept it quiet and there was an occasion where like a big artist wanted to cut a song that was really personal to me and I kind of was like could we not have that happen you know that song is way too personal to me and it happened enough and I was like I don't know what I'm waiting for you know like all these songs are kind of piling up I was unaware that I was going to put them into a concept album at the time. And at least a few of the songs. What happened is my second son was going to be born and I knew that this was going to be a rough time at home so I wasn't going to be able to do sessions and play that game. And I had this like literally an epiphany I think because it happened so quickly and I had all these little seeds of songs that you know that one should have gone to Maroon 5 and this one could have gone there and, and well, I really liked that one and no one would take that one. That's kind of like really my style and blah 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 and all of a sudden I, I just opened a Pro Tools session started like throwing in these songs that were in rough form or different voice notes from my phone and, and all of a sudden I realized I had 40% of a life story in of an album and I had a lot of gaps but I, I started putting them on the Pro Tools session I started that's going to be the birth that's going to be the this and that's going to be the death scene that some, Kanye West was going to take this song he decided not to and it was like when I die don't cry for me you know and I was like oh that's when he's old and, and so I started putting it together and realizing it was sort of semi-autobiographical except for stuff that I haven't gone through yet and uh, then I kind of knew really clearly what was needed and I needed a child 
childhood song with like a kid's choir. I needed a, a, a teen angst song. I needed like a, a drug escape song. I needed a college party song. I needed a uh, midlife crisis song. I needed a twilight years getting old song. I had like a rock bottom song. Yeah, hit the bottom. <laughs> and I had a depression song and I had a getting out, pulling yourself up by your boots song or, you know, it's going to get better. And then I had this little tiny seed of a marriage song that I had written for my own wife that really wasn't that good and I kind of dusted it off and first thing I wrote was chronologically was this verse for my wife when we were about to get married it was kind of like we're going to do this together marriage song and so I didn't have a good chorus and so the last thing I wrote for the record was this Blue Eyed Joy chorus which is one of my personal favorite musical moments on it and it's just cool that eight years later I had it took me eight years to write that song so and it's just a little tiny beautiful little ode to marriage and my wife and all that so so then I just I had this assignment I had September 24th when my son was born and things got rough at home as as predicted because you know having an infant and you know staying up and I was kind of the night nurse so I would stay up and I just started trying to knock off these ideas and I was so inspired because my dream was to write a concept album uh my whole life I've been kind of toying with it and finally I was like I'm just gonna do it like when is this gonna happen like when am I gonna get a chance to do this if I don't do it now, I just poured into it. And I'm, I wrote three songs in one night. I haven't done that for uh, 14 years or something. <laughs> I was so, I was like a child. I, I wrote the most of Sabotage on a guitar. And then I switched over and I wrote What a Life, which was the Twilight Year song. And then I wrote The End of Great Escape, which was the, the reprise, which was one of my favorite moments of the record, where it's out of Great Escape and he goes into, he's basically high on drugs and he remembers his childhood. And it's like a swirling kind of beat thing. And so I wrote those three ideas and one night all those made made it on the record. And that's just kind of how it went. And this is Sam talking about the nitty gritty of actually creating the record. It's almost like it chose me. It came to me very quickly. It was a uh, slow preparation and quick execution. You know, I basically prepared, had accidentally prepared music over an eight-year period. And when it was time to execute, I had to write six or seven more songs. And I had to develop the rest and produce everything. And to put that whole symphony together, just like my heroes before me, it was so satisfying. I can't even tell you. It was, it was like soul-satisfying. And I, I don't, I mean, I don't like to, to uh, be self-indulgent and waste time because I have children and they're very young and there's, this is the time to really shape and mold and raise the boys. And so I don't like to waste time on stuff. It's so it was weird to uh, engage in this and be, but I was full of life. I think my mother, who I saw was seeing at Christmas my parents saw me running out the door to go mix the record, you know, and she was like, I haven't seen you this excited in a long time. You must, it must be good. <laughs> I was like, I hope, like, I hope so. Felt good. I mean, just for fun. I, I remember that, uh, I really set a goal that it was going to be January 1st and I was going to be done with the record and I didn't want it to go into the next year and, and mess with that. So I just, I'll be done. And it was like December 30th. And, uh, I was with the mixer and we were doing t final tweaks. His name's Steve Sunholm. And I said, bounce that out, bounce that out. And I was he was bouncing all these tracks out and I was putting them on that same Pro Tools thing I opened in the first day. And I started replacing with all the final mixes, this 40 minute symphony together where they overlap and where it needs to go. And I was putting all the whole album together on this thing. And I remember I bounced it out, downloaded it, put it on my phone and I 
wrote home and I put the record on to check, you know, I'm just checking to see if there's any little thing wrong or if, if I messed up or if the levels are, you know, just checking. And I just put it on, drove home and I actually had like a 40 minute drive home, which is exactly what the record was. And by the time I got to the end of the record, my whole body was full of goosebumps. I pulled into the parking lot where, where we live up there. I said, oh my God, like I've had barely, I had like no changes. I like, basically it was done. And I think we had just the smallest tweak and something else, but I basically got to experience this dream come true. <laughs> I walked in the door. I don't even know what I said. I, I was like, I think I had my wife listen to it the next morning and she was like, Oh my God, you know, so it was uh, very special for us. As the saying goes, no man's an island. So Sam needed to enlist some people to help out and make this record. Here he's going to begin to talk about how that collaboration process started. This record, it was almost like I had to relearn how to do it. Partly because, mostly because I didn't feel I had permission to ask favors of my very, very successful songwriter friends. You know, I felt that it was going to be like pulling teeth. Like, I'm not, I can't promise you're going to make any money. Can't promise we're going to radio. And I don't want to do it. Like, I'd already spent a lot of time with those folks and I know the types of songs we would write. And it's just, that's not what I wanted it to be. I wanted to try to do it myself to like I used to. I used to write 100% songs. I used to produce 100%. I used, that's who I was. And then when I came to LA, I learned that everyone else was way better at almost everything I did. And so kind of pigeonholed as melody guy, which I enjoy. It comes much easier to me and going, trying to like write lyrics for Rihanna is like the last thing I could do. So quite a relief to not have to be considered melody guy. Cause then other people have to work on those lyrics. But it's funny because like my two of my biggest songs, I either wrote all the lyrics or most of the lyrics or wrote the main lyric <laughs> it, was, it was just always funny that people pigeonhole me when my two biggest songs are me on the lyrics but anyway with obviously with help but so i did never had a lot of confidence down here with lyrics what i'm saying is on this record was different because i got to write everything and express myself and it was very very therapeutic and powerful for me so i would write what i tried to do is i tried to write and vocal produce all the songs so that they sounded really good just vocally even with just the piano or bass and just a small drum beat or something and then i didn't feel terribly confident in my production skills so i partnered with the guy that i had worked with for a long time nate merchant and we would uh, you know take on a song here and there what was kind of cool is that sabotage which is one of my favorites I actually produced the first draft of it, about 90%. And I was so in shock that I had done that. And it came out so quickly. It was like 15 minutes. I had like the meat and potatoes of the whole production. It was so fast. And I was like, it was the most so freeing because I, it was cool. It was like cooler than anything I it was just like, yes, I was pumped. So I had more confidence after that. But I didn't feel like I was the finisher. So I would pass it off and to finish and make sure I didn't mess up any frequencies. And then, you know, or like clashing kick drums or anything.
Nate helped a lot clean up on that one. But you know, we would take like a song like Sugar is Sweet and just we have the song. I recorded the vocals to the radio quality or whatever. And then now we have this vocal stem, and then we go in there and try to, you know, find find the groove and all that together. So that would be process. There was one process where we had I had written another song for for pitch, and I called Norway and I said, "Hey, you remember that song we did?" And he said, "Yeah." I said, "Can you send me the stems to that song? I'll make you a producer on this song, and I'll just do everything else. Just send me the stems." So he sent me the stems. It's in the wrong tempo. It's in the wrong key. So I just started pitching it and putting in the right tempo and putting all the parts together and I made a full arrangement of another song stems <laughs> and it literally is like it just came together so beautifully I wrote the top line made the top line even better and then I added elements to help it build and to like you know fill it out and so we ended up co-producing that but it, that that's actually something I've been doing a lot lately is like send me the stems to that song that I love and let me see if I can adapt it to this song I just wrote you know and that has been fun because then you already know you like those sounds <laughs> it's awesome it's just a completely different song I mean you wouldn't recognize the two you know and it's just that he had such good sounds and all that so a lot of it was me writing and finishing vocals and putting together vibes and then calling a producer in to say do you want to help me knock this out I didn't want to waste anyone's time with like hey I'm not sure if this song's going to make the record you know i want to be like i've got this kind of lined up and i just need to get this right in the production so people you know isaiah tejada would come over and nate merchant would come over and me and jason evigan had already kind of written a song called it's going to get better but i sent it to him he said oh this is great let's get a gospel quiet so i called my friend nick seeley now he's in la but he went to dallas and he they recorded a gospel choir and, and that song keeps getting picked up by tv shows and sinks and stuff so i did something right with that one jason evigan is on that one he was such a help in the beginning a song called bring me home on there that craig coleman liked and it was supposed to be in some movie so we got kind of more attention on it and classic and a version that i thought was awesome and uh used that production and then jay cash had actually me and him had written the lyrics craig had put a stamp of approval on it and that but that didn't actually go in any movie it, and so it was just sitting there so i oh this is awesome this will be the uh the i need redemption song <laughs> obviously as you've heard sam's enthusiasm is abundant towards this record but I think it's now time to bring in some other voices so that we can get to know how this record looked from the outside. So I interviewed Nate Merchant to get his feelings on the record. First, he's going to tell us how him and Sam met since it's a great story. Sam was actually a, uh, a family friend. So my family knew the Martins and we grew up actually in the same neighborhood, little suburb south of Portland. Sam actually taught me guitar when I was in sixth grade. And so we had this sort of mentor type music relationship pretty early on. And then I ended up going to U of O to study music. And then I came home after my freshman year for the summer and I'd been learning different things about different DAWs and logic and stuff from Sam and calling him, hey, what limber do I put on the master and different things like that. And then he actually just, he gave me a call and he was like, hey man, uh, I'm looking for a producer to work under me and learn from me and stuff. And I was like, I absolutely want to do that. And then, you know, seven years later, we uh, got to make an album together. So <laughs> when you hear that somebody had a hand in the production on a record, that can look like a million different pictures since the role is so ambiguous. So I wanted to hear exactly what their collaboration looked like. 
So a lot, a lot of times what happened on this album is I'd come over to the house. He's got this spot in Silver Lake where he has a nice studio over there. You know, I'd go over to the house and he'd he'd have three songs finished, just chords and acapella or a production, you know, baseline production and then the vocals. And he'd be like, well, which one do you want to work on today? And I'd be like, oh, my God. OK, these all sound amazing. I want to work on Sugar is Sweet. <laughs> you know, so that was kind of how it went down in terms of jumping on some of these songs and, and getting to help out production wise. A lot of them came out in, in different ways. Sabotage was one that Sam handled more of the demo production and got it, you know, pretty far before he passed it off to me. And then, you know, I took it home and replaced some synths and put some fatty bass lines in there and, you know, programmed some more drums and put in fills and, you know, kind of polished it up and did more of like the finishing role on there. And then Sugar is Sweet was one where he had, you know, I think it was piano and vocals. And then we kind of put our heads together over at his house and, and he played this sweet bass line. And then, you know, he went away and I programmed some drums and got some synths in there. And, you know, so each song was a little bit different, but my role was you know predominantly with the production and finishing touches and stuff like that when you hear this record aside from it being a concept album you can hear that there's this more prog take on it so i wanted to see if there was any emotional touchstones that brought them to this unique vision we were just trying to find something unique sonically and i think we sort of achieved that it's this weird blend of hip-hop with pink floyd with pop melodies and you know big drums and organs and guitars you know it's it's just this whole melting pot of different sonics and stuff and so i think that was kind of the main goal and you know with sam it's always how do we get the most energy in the song how do we push it forward how do we make everything exciting how do we get to the chorus? you know those type of things is a lot of what we tried to do but um sam is obviously an incredible writer but is very involved in the production too and in terms of directing things and even touching things and getting things where they need to be so it was really really not too difficult get to work on this <laughs> they all actually came pretty easy cool because sam you know did a lot of the heavy lifting in terms of getting the, the melody and the lyrics where they needed to be before i even came into the process so a lot of it was getting the production in the right place it, the only thing i can really think of is on i think shine on the one at the outro was the one that probably took the most work we had a kind of a tough time trying to figure out you know how to make it cool and we finally stumbled upon this chopped choir sound that was really cool and then we added these big hip-hop drums and stuff and i think we did the drums three or four different times and tried it at sam's house and then i took it home and tried again and then we were at the the mixer's house and i was in headphones trying again you know so it's that's a lot of the process with sam too and, and things i've learned from him is sometimes it takes five times to get it right you know and it's be okay with that and the finished product is better because of it so we're proud of where it ended up for those who've never been a part of a pop production it's often shocking some of the ways that you come up with a unique melody oftentimes you have to take yourself out of the normal singing over the song element and do something totally unique but this technique is really unique one thing that i don't want to say a phase but something that sam had discovered that he he threw around a lot in this record and that we we leaned on it for just those cool ear candy type sounds was sam discovered this sort of method where he would put his hands over his mouth sort of like he's almost doing like a like you would do a bird call or something like that and he would go into the mic and we would just loop the song and then he would just sing these these crazy unique melodies that we would just drop in and you hear him in, in sugar is with the ooh, ooh, these little things where it's hilarious to watch because he'll have his eyes closed and his hands over his mouth and he'll be making these crazy noises and then they turn into these beautiful like melodies that we pitch up and distort and do things like that just to get these these cool ear candy sounds and um so it, th those are sprinkled you know throughout actually most of the songs but that's kind of just a funny technique that we used <laughs> Now, 
Next, I talked to Jason Evigan, a producer and songwriter who's known for his work with Demi Lovato, Madonna, and Maroon 5. Here's what he had to say about how he got to work with Sam. I met Sam Martin maybe five years ago. We were set up on a blind date session. It was me, him, and another songwriter, Explicit, and J.R. Rodham. He walked in the room and just had crazy wild energy, and we wrote a song called Roller Coaster. That I don't think it ever came out, but that was that was our first encounter, and then we, we connected. We just kept writing. We set up more dates and kept writing and writing, and our friendship just grew into something special, you know? Sam called me up and said, hey, I'm making this album. I want to fulfill one of my dreams and make a, a concept album. He said, can you come up to my place in Oregon, and can we uh, just work on it for a few days or like a week or something like that. So sure. So my wife and I went up to Oregon and we worked on it. We went to a studio, played some live drums and some things. And the, the one song that really I connected with like crazy was the one, I, uh, it's going to get better. So we really dove in on that one together. I sprinkled stuff here and there on other songs, but that was the one that we really spent a lot of time on together. We did most of it up in Oregon where he was living for the while. I wanted the production to have this kind of almost sort of cold underwater sort of feeling. So I remember taking all the samples and all the drums and we really filtered them down low, taking all the highs out until the end and having it finally open up. We used the Juno. I remember the, the Juno 60 was the main synth we use a lot on on the record. There's a song I did called Chains by Nick Jonas. I was kind of wanted to take a little of that sonic landscape and kind of throw it in there. Kind of cold, a lot of blues sort of. I don't know if it makes sense, like the color blue. So that, the song kind of reminds me of it, it feels like that color. Also, just you know, knowing Joy, Sam's wife, and knowing that he wrote it to her during she had such a tough pregnancy. It was really, she was sick for almost the whole time and, and just hearing the song that he wrote, it was just a beautiful moment just just to hear him singing to his wife, it's going to get better, you know? You know, Sam, and Sam also, is a, he's a tough guy. He tells you how it is. He's really real. Sometimes he's a little harsh to people, so it was really, when you see that side of him come out, that's really sweet and encouraging. It's a beautiful thing, and that's why I think the record really connected with me so much, because I, I love that side of him. He said, when did, uh, just to see him like write a song to his wife, like that was beautiful. The cool thing about me and Sam's relationship is we, we're like spiritual brothers. We're, it goes way deeper than just the music. We've He introduced me to a mentor of mine who really changed my life and we would go visit him in dc all the time and just sit and listen to this guy talk and he really helped us with a lot of things in our life and so making this album with him being a part of it was really special because you know knowing sam and knowing how deep he likes to get it was good to work on music that was really 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 from the soul it wasn't like let's try to make a pop hit let's try to you know make something just cookie cutter like that's why it took so long to make it too it was like everything had to hit the threshold of compass in his heart so it was really special it's not always the easiest process working with sam because he knows knows exactly what he likes, knows exactly what he wants, and he doesn't stop till he gets there. So he'll push you and push you and push you and push you till he gets there. I think that's why he's as prolific as he is, because I saw him do that with a big Jason Derulo song he had. Uh, I was there, actually, when they wrote the song, too, and I saw through the process him just pushing Ian and pushing him, you know, take it more, 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 we more, and got to where it had to be. The first time he played me the full album, he sent it to me. I remember I was driving with my wife in the car, and I just started bawling listening to it. It was just, it was so powerful. At first, you know, hearing the kids and how we incorporated all the children into it and the, the whole storyline it just got me so hard because i know sam has such a good heart and seeing it come to life on a record really was a powerful moment for me it's gonna get So now that we've heard from some of Sam's collaborators about what it was like working on the record, I wanted to hear about the struggles he encountered while trying to put together such an enormous feat. 
most of the stuff was flowing. It was really fun. And, but I was really stuck on the childhood song. And I had like one that kind of like had it sounding like old man by Neil Young. And I just wasn't even close to as good. So I was discouraged. And then I tried another version of a childhood song and I, I couldn't find the tone. I finally wrote this little theme, you know, those summer days are forever mine. And I thought it was nice. It was like a little folk thing. And then it started, it stuck with me. And then I, that be, that's actually one of the main themes of the whole record is it keeps reemerging. Those summer days are forever mine. then I thought, what a uh, kids choir. And so I started to find, you know, like this girl and that guy and this and started singing. And it started to like, I literally made a kids choir over like six or seven sessions. And it's like this big, kind of reminded me of what's that band? Blind Melon. Uh, it was like that kind of thing to me. And, and I was like, oh, that's nice. And, and then I thought, well, those summer days are forever mine. It obviously seems positive. And I wanted it to be positive, but I always wanted to be like, you know, the parents are stressed out and is that why daddy shouts? And, you know, and I wanted this sort of like Pink Floyd vibe to be in there because life, you know, my life was very good uh, uh, growing up. But like every family, we all have, there's darkness there. And if, if you see where my dad came from, you'd be amazed that he ended up the way he ended up in a good way. And so then he kind of protected us from the darkness that had come from his house. And there was still darkness left over to deal with. And as I grew up and pursued, you know, more the best way to live and pursued spiritual things and trying to figure out what life's all about, I realized that my growing up wasn't perfect. You know, it wasn't, it had a lot of stuff still needed to deal with, with no major trauma or anything. So I wanted the Summer Days song to be a reflection of both. Is it like, as a kid, there were those moments where you just didn't want the day to end and it was so fun and you're in the park or in the, doing some crazy activity in the forest or whatever. And there were those moments and then the other moments were like, why, why was it so stressful for no reason? You know? And so I, that was tough because I wanted to be cool. I wanted the record to be cool too, you know, like, like sabotage. So the first song you hear is an instrumental and the next song you hear is the precursor to Summer Days and Summer Days does not actually sound cool. It's really like kind of beautiful and it sets the story up, but it's not cool. So I was kind of bummed. <laughs> that was the story. And I tried to put like more hip hop elements in there and stuff to just make sure it was as modern as possible with the kids choir. But I think by the time you get through Summer Days and into the story and you hit Sabotage and it's such a different vibe and all of a sudden the kid's gone dark and it's anger and, you know, it's all like, you know, Imagine Dragons-y, then you realize, oh, this is an art piece. He just went from, from a kid's choir into, like, radioactive. Now we have art. I am really proud of the transition. I'm actually, while I'm saying that, I'm getting goosebumps because that's literally what I love about the changing songs and into the next vibe. And Mine was more ADD, I think, because pop culture is now, 
you need to move quicker and get to the point and you can't just hold for two minutes like Pink Floyd and get away with it. And the next struggle was the uh, midlife crisis song and, and that was like I just couldn't get the vibe right and finally I kind of stumbled on this is what got me excited I said uh, I'm nine to five making someone else rich and I thought holy crap that, that's most people's lives like working some crazy job and with some salary the other guy the guy who owns the company is you know getting rich off the labor I whew, and I was like I'm gonna finish that song you know that and so the, the midlife crisis is about you know things aren't as good as it was you know where'd the magic go uh, i'm nine to five making someone else rich now i'm aware of the world and i'm jaded and you got to live before you die you're gonna let that get you down and then you're just a sucker you know because that's the way it is and but but you can choose to be different and that so i took a hopeful note where you're kind of like you take it all in all the negativity in you you deal with it and then your conclusion is nope not gonna let it get me down you're my finish things off, I always think it's interesting to hear what the collaborators think makes an artist unique. So this is Nate talking about just that. I think it's the spiritual stuff. I think he has a really great view of the world and how we're supposed to be and our spiritual stuff. And so that, I think, is obviously infused in the album. And so it's, you know, it's just the big important stuff is mostly what he's talking about. And I think that that's really cool. And then I guess creatively, his melodies and ideas are just ridiculous. It's the stuff that he can come up with melodically is really a game changer. So I would say those two things. And here's Jason talking about what he thinks makes Sam unique. Well, there's two things. One is I would say he probably has the best voice I've ever recorded. And I'd say that he has really strong morals. He doesn't compromise them for anything, which is refreshing, actually. Like he doesn't, he doesn't compromise who he is for anyone or anything, which, which is nice. Lastly, I talked to Sam about what it felt like in the end to take on such a huge undertaking and have it finished and what it meant for the rest of his life. And I remember after we were done, I, I played before it was mastered, we Craig Coleman in person and I kind of flew through the record and his first comment was, you clearly put a lot of love into this. If you can feel it in the record. Oh, yes. Thank you. Because I never actually knew if it was up to, <laughs> you know, if it was really good enough. And for him to be like, wow, you can feel that means that me and Steve had really got it there. When we mastered it, even the mastering engineer was, yeah, this is a beautiful record. Like, so happy, so happy to work on it. And I was like, whoa, thanks. You know, like, great. You know, I, I don't know. I don't know if it's good enough. So, I mean, I don't know what song or whatever or what kind of thing would be played at like at the end of my life or, you know, when my when I'm done or, or when it's really old or a funeral or something. And, and this kind of feels like the piece in which, you know, my descendants would be like, if you want to understand Sam, you got to listen to Alpha Omega. You you know, and then that's him. I couldn't have articulated it to at the time, but what was happening is that I needed to have my opus after all this great stuff that has happened and still not to feel like I've had my opus and express it and put it out there, just have it exist. And I think I'm actually a different person after Alpha Omega. Just in calmer about, like if I'm in a session, for instance, and we're writing kind of a dumb song or like a song that's like for pitch and it's supposed to go to some artist. Let's say I'm not feeling it or I'm not 
feeling like I'm totally contributing enough. I don't freak out anymore. <laughs> I used to be really anxious about that. Being like, man, they're all writing so quickly and I shouldn't even be in this room. It's kind of how I would feel. And now I feel like I've expressed myself. Today's not my day, but I've done it. So it doesn't matter. And it's going to happen again. And I'm way more confident in my ability to say, yo, let's just go with what the flow, what's happening in the room and do your best. And don't worry about it. Like you've gotten to do it. I think that's sort of my personality. I, I always had these checklists, like meet the president or, you know, there's this. And if you look at my, my life, has got a lot of crazy things that have happened. Like even before all this Hollywood stuff happened, I, I, I ran the Boston marathon on a bet with no training and I broke my foot doing it, but didn't know it. I stress fractured it. I snuck in in Rome to see a, a private viewing of the Pope. And it, I, I didn't know I was doing it at the time, but it became one of those stories. They're like, tell the Pope story. And then I only applied to one school. Berkeley got into it and got, got rose through the ranks there and then left. And, you know, and to get signed by Mike Karen and to be with Max Martin and Adam Levine and then to get David Guetta to feature you on stuff and have a worldwide number one. And, then, you know, it's just like a crazy life. And so now after Alpha Omega, it's like, whew, you know, like, and now I've had children and this is like clearly the move is this is what my life is kind of led up to. Everything feels like, wow, what a lot. So I think that was the thing that was kind of one of the pieces left. It's like, why haven't you done this in music? I mean, you've been making music since you were 12 and now, you know, you're not, you don't have your concept album done. It's like, come on, you know, get, get to it. I don't know. It was a dramatic effect on me. So I, you know, I have more, I have lots more in me. I've been so creative the last few months. And, but, but after we, I finished it, I always just ran dry super excited about what i'm doing now i was uh, just the, uh, yesterday i was like buzzing because i just finished this song i couldn't believe it you know thank you for listening you can find all the episodes of inside the album on your favorite podcast app sam martin's alpha omega is out now